whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can spend time in your word and considering uh, this distinctive of our Christian faith, but also uh, something that we strive to uphold here and obey. I pray that this would not be the great omission at uh, Berean Baptist Church, that we would be faithful uh, to be declaring, proclaiming the gospel wherever we go, and that we would look for opportunities to witness, and that when we get, uh, when we get into relationships with people, that we would strive to witness in that relationship as well, and uh, that we would not be content to have the people around us lost and uh, dying, um, but without any effort on our part to retrieve them. And I ask that uh, you would press home to us the great duty that you've given to us as believers, but also the great privilege of sharing the good news of the gospel with sinners. And uh, Lord, what a joy it is when we see a sinner converted. And I pray that we would see that more and that you would uh, give us strength and power as we go, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All four Gospels and the book of Acts record Christ's commission to his disciples uh, to preach the gospel to every creature. So this is, uh, this is not uh, just a passing uh, thing that Christ gave us. Not just, you know, it, it's not a disputable responsibility here at all. There's, there's a very clear commission that comes from Christ and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke twice mentions this responsibility. Now John records Jesus giving this commission in the upper room before he died, on the night before he died. So think about this. <clears throat> before Jesus died, we could say that not his dying words, but before he goes to the cross, he commissions his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And of course, there's, there's a lot packed in that statement, too. Because Jesus, remember, he's in the upper room. He's made it known to the disciples that where he is going is to the cross to be tortured and bleed and die for the souls of men. So, so that's the first thing to understand. When Jesus said, as the Father hath sent me, I've, I've pointed this out to you a number of times, that some of the things that Jesus said were so, I, I don't mean to be coarse here, but they were pregnant with meaning. There was a lot of meaning packed in that statement right there. As the Father has sent me, what has the Father sent Jesus to do? He sent him to die. He sent him to die. Jesus was just about to do that. He has just made it clear to the disciples what really the whole of his life has been aimed at. Right? And then he says, As the Father has sent me, even so... Send I you, not to glamour, not to glory, but to die, to die. So that's, this is among the last things Jesus says before he dies. And then he rises from the dead. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record as the last words that Jesus gave before he ascended to heaven. This same thing, the same Commission, right? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, as Matthew 28 says it. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So this is what Christ wants us to do. All power is given unto me, he says. Ooh, I just keep getting louder and louder. I'm getting rowdy up here. Uh, but anyway, I know he's trying to figure it out. Uh, but but um, in, in Acts, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, 
Um, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And he said, ye shall be witnesses. Ye shall be. Not you ought to be. Right? Not I command you to be. But ye shall be witnesses. Okay? So I pointed out to you last week that with being a witness for Christ is an inescapable thing for a Christian. You can't not be a witness. You may bear false witness to Christ, but you cannot bear no witness to Christ. You are a believer. You are bearing about in your body the dying of the Lord Jesus in all that you do. So we ought to remember. That's why, by the way, we ought to be holy. Because if you are unholy, you are bearing false witness. If you bore false witness against me, that would be a sin. If you bore false witness against a loved one, that would be a sin. Terrible sin. If you bore false witness against your neighbor, that would be a sin against God. But to bear false witness against Christ, could there be a greater sin? And you who believe that you've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've been sanctified, that you've been cleansed from your sin, to carry on in that sin. And to say to the world that Christians are unholy, not set apart to Christ, not made clean. That's that's a scandal. That's a disgrace. That's a terrible shame. All of us, all of us should repent of that and should be mindful of the fact that we are witnesses before the world. We are in everything we do proclaiming this is what it means to be a Christian. What's the world's biggest um, critique, shall we say, of Christians. Huh? What is it that the world is the most offended by about Christians? Is it not at least what they express? I, I know that because they, they're, what they're really offended by is the image of Christ that they see in you. But the scandal the slander against Christians is that they're a bunch of hypocrites, right? And it is a slander. But there's some truth to it, too. Because how often are we careless? How often are we careless of our testimony? That's why we talk about our testimony. Our testimony means something. Because, you know, what does a witness do? He gives testimony. He testifies. And you're testifying in everything that you do, not just what you say, but in what you do. You're testifying of the power of God's grace. This is what it looks like when God's grace touches the life of a sinner. You're saying that. Now, I do understand that the grace of God has to work in us, and that all of us have work to do. The grace of God has work to do in us. All of us. But how diligent ought we to be, how careful ought we to be, to recognize sinful tendencies and to resist them and fight against them. Right? And how diligent should we be when we have sinned? And disgrace the name of Christ to confess that sin and seek the aid, the help that God so freely provides for us. That's, that's what the Bible says. What manner of people ought we to be? Right? Because of what Christ has done. You shall be witnesses unto me. Paul, uh, Paul said, no, not Paul, Jesus. Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me. Right. Greater authority than Paul. Um, Jesus said, you shall be witnesses. And remember, I pointed out to you, well, I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
So we have the we have all four gospels. Um, two times Luke mentions this commission that God has given to us. So the Bible emphasizes the importance of this basic Christian duty to preach the gospel to the nations. In our previous message, we made the point then that uh, not only is witnessing for Christ um, inescapable for a Christian, but also it is a Christian duty. It is the Great Commission. Witnessing, we said, is a sort of death. And that's what I was going to uh, a moment ago. You shall be witnesses. The Greek word is martyrus. Uh, transliterated English word of martyrus is martyr. And in fact, in the, in the New Testament, that Greek word martyrus is sometimes translated martyr. When you see the word martyr, it is a transliteration of that Greek word uh, there. So martyr, and I pointed out to you, we don't want to overdo it with that. We can overdo it uh, with our application of that. We don't want to go too far with it. But just to point out to you that witnessing, preaching the gospel, is a kind of dying. Christ. And I said that a minute ago. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me. Remember? What, Je what the Father sent Jesus to do was to die. Even so, send I you. So he's sending you to die. To bear about in your body the dying of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Witnessing requires a kind of death to self in order for us to share with others what Christ has done for us. We have to be willing to let our friendships die, to let our relationships die, even to let our reputations die. Our witness for Christ, in fact, it demonstrates our willingness to die for him. If you aren't willing to speak up for him when you're in a crowd of people who you are friendly with, who are not likely to take up stones and stone you to death, or to drag you through the streets until you die, if you're unwilling to open your mouth and share the gospel with them, how can you think that in the day of persecution that you would you would be one to die for Christ. And I talked about last time that I think we all struggle with that. When we think about it, there is a, a genuine fear that we all have experienced that, that if that day were to come, that I would betray the Lord Jesus. But my friend, if you're unwilling to speak up for him, to announce the good news of what Christ has done for us to unbelievers and to sinners. You are then setting yourself up to fail in the day of persecution and suffering. So our witness for Christ demonstrates our willingness to die for him even if we are killed for it. But also there is the pain of witnessing itself. We've all experienced, I talked about this on Sunday. Remember John took the little book um, in the book of Revelation, he took the little book and he ate it and it was in his mouth as sweet as honey and in his belly it was bitter, right? And I pointed out that that's the, that's the Christian experience with the message that we have to preach, that it tastes sweet to us, but in our belly, and that's where the fire burns, right? In our belly, there is a sickness, a queasiness, a nervousness that we feel, that we experience when we go to witness for Christ. I, I'm telling you this to say this is not a strange thing. This is not like unique to you, all right? I feel it, everyone who witnesses feels it, I, pretty much. There are some people who don't like have there are some people who just aren't sensitive or aware 
of what people are thinking of them and that happens and that's fine but I'm saying that most people feel that that sense of nervousness and especially you know you knock on the door and the person's really friendly and nice especially if they're Mormon right they're gonna squeeze you they're gonna flatter you they're gonna tell you how wonderful it is that you're out doing this and how it just they just admire you so much and when you start sharing the gospel and just giving them verses they're gonna they're just gonna like get out the whole tub of butter and spread it all over you right and just butter you up and you're gonna feel very self-conscious saying anything that could cause such a nice nice person offense right but we have a duty to declare the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to them. Believe me when I say this, that it is strategy on their part to butter you up and to flatter you because they know, they know because they've been out. Most of them have gone on their mission. Many of them, you talk to them, they were sent to the Bible Belt. Guess what they found in the Bible Belt? They found a bunch of people who couldn't stand them and weren't ashamed to say so. And then they found also those people who were super nice, nice to them. And they, so they know, they know how hard it is, all right? And I'm not telling you to be mean or ornery or nasty to them, but I'm saying that when you're standing there and you're feeling that in your gut, you've got to tell them the truth. You can smile and you can say it nicely, but you've got to tell them the truth. You've got to do that. Witnessing is a kind of dying. <clears throat> if you would be a witness for Christ, you must die to self. When we witness, we bear witness to the glory of God in Christ. That's what we're witnessing. The missionary psalm, Psalm 96, says that we declare his glory among the heathen, tells us to. And his glory is seen most clearly in his plan for our redemption. That's the plainest, the clearest presentation of the glory of God in Christ. And really, that's where the glory of God is seen most vividly, is in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, that's why we preach Jesus Christ, because Christ... God has revealed himself in the word of God, but all of the word of God, the entirety of the word of God, is aiming at and pointing at the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the Gospels, we come to the point of the whole Bible. Everything before it points to Jesus and anticipates, and everything after it describes and interprets and explains and applies Jesus Christ. So it is entirely about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. He is. So you proclaim him. You preach him. <clears throat> we proclaim his gospel as ambassadors. God has given to us ministry of reconciliation. That's what we need to remember. Now, and I preached this to you last week. But I just want to run through it again with you and remind you that we go as ambassadors. Look, if you were, if um, the president called you up tomorrow and said, I want you to be the ambassador to Chile, you're going to move down there. I would, I would personally request like Tahiti or some island nation like that. I'd rather be, you know, in the tropics, uh, in the Caribbean. Let me be uh, ambassador to the Caribbean. Please, well, I can, you know, sacrifice myself to do that. But if you go to one of those places, all right, and let's say it's a hostile nation, and you're sent to be the ambassador of a hostile to a hostile nation, your job is not to uh, make demands on that country, not to assert your authority, but rather to represent the authority of the nation you represent, to represent to them what 
your boss, the president, is communicating and wants you to communicate to them. And if, if, if I were the president of the United States, um, my how things would change. But if, if I were the president of the United States and you, you were my ambassador and I said to you, this is the message we want delivered to this country and you delivered some other message or watered it down or weakened it or indicated weakness in some way, I would not only be right to yank you, I would be derelict in my duties if I did not. We have no right to water down the gospel. We have no right to try to make it palatable to a rebellious world. This is, this is really the heart, the crux of the worship wars today. All right, which really the worship wars for a decade or so, that was like the topic on everybody's mind all the time. Worship wars. People are tired of them. Let's stop fighting them. Books were written. Stop fighting over worship, they said. And believe me, the people who were writing those books were the people who were pushing the edge and trying to make the gospel palatable to the world. And everyone else was saying, whoa, hold on. Hold on, that's not what the church is supposed to be doing. The church is not supposed to be a watered-down version of Christianity. The church is supposed to be the full-orbed, full-strength, glorious as an army with banners. Okay, terrible, I should say, as an army with banners. That's what we're supposed to be in the face of the world. Now tell me, please, tell me, these contemporary vanilla churches, huh? rock and roll churches, tell me that they are terrible as an army with banners, because I tell you they are not. Nothing like it. They look like, you know, that's the one thing about an army with banners. The banners are a clear declaration that we are not you and that we are coming after you. That's what we're for. But we've given that up. Right? So our job, our calling is not to make the gospel friendly to a world that is hostile to God. That's not our job. Our job is to faithfully represent the gospel to mankind and it is to the saving of their soul when we do. Because God, whose bow is drawn and his arrow is set, before he lets go, is saying to the sinner, repent. That's not the picture we like of God. That's not the loving picture of God. It's not the Disney God. But it is the God of the Bible. And our job is to go to that sinner and warn them. You know, I mean, one of the great sermons in American history was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And some have said that there it was an excessive message, but the paint, the picture that he paints, that the sinner is held by the slightest thread over the flames of hell, that vivid picture of that. And it will take God but a snap to sever that cord that holds you out of hell. Now that's the kind of preaching that brings repentance. That's not the kind of preaching we like or want to hear. But that is what we're sent to do, to go to sinners and say that you're a, there's but a step between you and death. Flee from wrath to come. And if I don't do that, I'm derelict in my duty. I'm called to be an ambassador. And this is the thing. 
This is the wonderful thing about the gospel. Men will accuse and slander God as if he were some sadistic evil tyrant who likes to just torture innocent people. It's not, it's not the truth. It's not the truth at all. People are sinful, wicked, everyone. We go astray as soon as we be born, speaking lies. This, the Bible tells the truth. I was talking to a lady recently, and she said, well, you know, the Bible is man's word. I said, that's weird, honestly, for someone to say that. It, the only way you can say that is if you have not really read the Bible. Because the Bible says things about men that men never say about themselves. Because, and I told her this, most people you talk to, if you say, are men really wicked and evil, or are they basically good? She said, basically good. I said, right, the Bible says they're all evil and wicked. That's not how men speak about mankind, humanity. That's a good indication that this is not the work of man. And not only that, but if you were trying to invent a God, would you invent the God of the Old Testament? If you were trying to sell the world on that God, would you have God behave like he behaves in the Old Testament? I'm not saying anything to, at all against God at all. God just shows us who he is. You can shake your fist at him. You can run and hide from him, or you can fall on your knees and worship him. And our call, our duty as Christians, is to preach repentance to people who are shaking their fist at God. All right? And they're going to do so until they face him. And then they're going to find how puny their fist really is. And how fruitless that hostility is against God. You know, marching the guy off to the death chamber, he can curse and he can swear and he can threaten. But when he gets there, he's going to die. And when you stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. But this is the glory and goodness of God that extends to rebellious, raging sinners forgiveness. He extends grace. He calls you to repentance and offers a pardon to you if you will. And so we are witnesses because God has made us witnesses of his great glory and grace. Look, we're witnesses of it. It's like if you were a witness of a crash, right? You saw it, you witnessed it, right? We're witnesses of a saving grace because we have experienced it. That's why really it's as powerful a witness to somebody to tell a person what you were and what God did for you. That's a powerful thing. He took me up also out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon the rock and established my goings. He put a new song in my heart. He even prays unto our God, many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. That's, that's our call. Now, compassion should enter the picture because we're human beings and we ought to feel compassion towards other human beings who stand in need of deliverance from their sins. But compassion is not the driving force behind our witness. Uh, sometimes we're called to witness to people we feel no compassion for, no love towards. What the motivation is the love of Christ. Right? What motivates us is the great glory of God. All right, then that brings us to the point that I didn't get to last week, and that is that soul winning is not just an individual duty, it is also a church duty. The Great Commission was not given 
merely to individual believers. Christ gave the Great Commission to his church because Jesus in his ministry promised that he would build his church. He didn't say that someone else would build it. The apostles didn't build it, right? The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ himself was the chief cornerstone. Jesus said, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a good thing, by the way, that the church was built by Christ and not by men. Because the works of men fail. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the work of Christ. So the Bible nowhere teaches that the day of Pentecost was the founding of the church. The, <clears throat> the day of Pentecost was, in fact, the empowering of the church, which is what Jesus told the disciples to wait, tarry in Jerusalem, until they were endued with power from on high. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, he filled the place where they were at. Yes, they were flaming tongues of fire above each head, but the Spirit filled the place where they were at. The church was empowered on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> so then the church has a duty to actively engage the community with the gospel. The church does. We, as a church, are commissioned. That's why the church has a duty to provide ministries and schedules for soul winning, ensuring that the church is engaged in evangelizing their city. That's why I think that ministries should be conducted through the church and not, you know, you're a member of the church, but you are kind of doing your own thing, freelancing out there, all right? Uh, we're not called to freelance. We're called, in fact, to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Now, that doesn't keep you from finding a place where you can be actively engaged in evangelism and witnessing. But it does mean that when you are engaged that way, if you go to a truck stop and you uh, are preaching the gospel at the truck stops, then that's great. That's a wonderful thing. But remember that you're doing so as a part of this church, as an extension of this church. And don't think that you're just going to roam and range and do your own thing, right? The individual cannot fulfill his duty without the church, and the church also cannot fulfill its duty without the individual. Otherwise, how are we to teach men to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you if we're not acting as part of the church and on behalf of it? Observing all things whatsoever I've commanded you includes and and really what's central to that is that accountability to the local church that comes through church membership that's what we should be teaching people to do and directing them towards we win them to christ we teach them uh, obedience through baptism and then church membership accountability to the church and look i'm not going to i don't make a secret of the fact that you join this church that we're going to discipline you. Now, I had a lady that um, emailed me one time because she was upset about that word discipline. Like, you just want to discipline everybody, she said. Like, that was a bad thing. Right? I pointed out to her that to discipline means to make faithful. That's what it means. A disciplined person is a faithful person. So if I'm going to make you disciplined, which is really what discipleship is, I'm going to ingrain in you the disciplines of the Christian life. All right? So no, I'm not looking to excommunicate people. But also, if you join the church, you understand that that is a possibility. If you reject and refuse to follow what the Word of God says. Now, we must not excommunicate you or um, remove you from church membership or place you under discipline, correction of the church um, for light reasons or because, you know, 
I wanted you to buy a Chevy and you bought a Ford instead, you know. Well, maybe buying Fords might be subject to, no, no, no. I don't know Ford, you know, answer. Anyway, um, but no, the, the point is, of course not, the personality or personal opinions of the pastor, clear violation, unrepentant violation of the word of God would certainly bring you uh, under the judgment of the church, no doubt. But that's, look, I'm subject to the same thing. I have rebuked not an elder, except to be in the case, uh, in something, two or three witnesses, right? Let every word be established, slaughtered. It's like the slaughterhouse of Pastor Malinak's memory here. Um, but they that sin rebuke before all. Right? Uh, I'm held doubly accountable in Scripture. Okay? Um, but we can't teach you to observe all things if we are not, we can't effectively disciple unless we can help people get plugged into the church for accountability. Now, <clears throat> we can find many ways to fulfill this duty of evangelism. And we could talk about a lot of things. So I'll say this, that the most effective witness that you'll ever have are with people that you know very well. And that you witness to consistently. That's also hard. It's much easier to have the, a stranger slam a door in your face than it is to have a co-worker avoid you, whisper against you, despise you. But we have a duty to preach to the people that God has brought into our lives. When evangelizing, the Bible usually speaks, though, in terms of door-to-door, house-to-house, personal Work. Let me give you some examples. In Acts 20 and verse 20, Paul said, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is speaking of there is the fact that he preached the word to them in their public meetings, and then he went into their homes and he taught them the word of God. He discipled them. He did Bible studies in their homes. Acts 2.46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now that breaking of bread from house to house is just simply, it, it encompasses a lot. Going into homes, and sitting with them and sharing a meal and preaching the gospel, evangelizing. Acts 5 and verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have a duty. God placed us in Ogden, Utah, and that means that we need to be going into the homes of people in our area and attempting to pre proclaim the gospel to them. That's what we're to be doing. This seems also to be the method used by the 70 when Jesus sent them out. Luke 10, verse 2, Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves, carrying neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way, and into whatsoever house ye enter, First say, peace be to this house, and if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house, Jesus said. Sounds like it contradicts what I said. Um, but he's talking about where to stay during that time. When a family welcomes you, and that's, I mean, this was a tough thing, imagine that they went out. Now, this was a culture that valued hospitality. 
But of course, still to this day, uh, Brother uh, Haynes tells us that hospitality is almost exclusively the way that they witness over in the Middle East. Uh, that the people uh, want to have you in, you have them in, that this is a big deal, and that this is the way you build relationships so that you can preach the gospel to them. This also seems to be implied in Christ's great parable, the marriage supper, when the invited guests refused to come. Luke 14, 21. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lands of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the holes and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Now there are other means of fulfilling this duty, but the duty of going house to house, of taking the gospel house to house, door to door, looking for people who will allow you to come in and sit down and share the good news of the gospel with them. That's what we're doing. That's what we're after. In the New Testament, I see several different avenues also that the, God, the apostles use for gospel witness. Paul often preached, for instance, in the synagogues. In fact, the book of Acts makes a big deal out of this. In Acts chapter 13, verse 13, now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Right? So, so Paul is going into the synagogue with the intention of preaching the gospel. And this was not an isolated incident. Acts 14, verse 1, And it came to pass in Iconium, that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. In Acts 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, listen to this, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. In Acts 17, verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Acts 18, verse 1, <coughs> After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. In Acts 18, verse 7, and he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. In Acts 18, verse 18. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. In Acts 18, verse 24, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. The man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took unto him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Acts 19, verse 8. 
and went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, let me just say this. It's a little difficult for us to do that kind of thing because Paul, understand, gathered with the believers to worship on Sunday, but on Saturday he was able to go in and preach and dispute with the Jews and the synagogues, right? So he was able to do that. It would be a little different for us to try to go into, say, the LDS wards and uh, go into their testimony meetings and get the gospel there. Um, it can be done. We can do it. Um, Pastor Kirkman has a young lady who was saved out of Mormonism not too long ago, and um, she wanted to go to her ward and tell them what had happened, and she did. And um, I think that's good, biblical there. But I think that that also tells us that we need to think about some other ways that we can imitate what Paul did with this. Paul famously preached also in the public square, Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, the spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto, in, unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. So Paul didn't just go house to house. He went to the public square. He went to the place where the people were. And so we ought to seek to engage men on these levels as well. The most common, the most frequent method of evangelism in the Bible is door-to-door, house-to-house. Now, the bus ministry is a ministry that utilizes house-to-house evangelism, and that is the way we approach it in our church as well. We go in every week. We do Bible studies with the kids, with the family, if they will. Uh, We teach them the Word of God, and uh, we look for those kinds of engagements. The nursing home, similarly, gives us the opportunity to visit residents regularly to teach them the Word of God. Jail ministries also bring us into the homes of the prisoners. We should look for other opportunities, fairs, parades, Beaver State, events where we can set up and engage unbelievers. We should be looking for these things. Church members have a duty to involve themselves in the outreach ministries of the church. And then, our witnessing should not be limited to the scheduled times. We need to be careful of that, of, you know, pigeonholing witness to Saturday morning every other week at 10 o'clock, all right? We, yes, we should be faithful to that, but that should not be the extent of our witnessing. We are witnesses. We witness, in fact, because we are witnesses and not the other way around. We need to get into the practice of handing out tracts and watching for opportunities to share the gospel with others, sensitive to those opportunities. Our duty, then, is fulfilled not as we see results, but as we preach the gospel. Paul, remember, sowed, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The command is to go, to preach, to teach. That's the command. A mistaken notion of our duty will result in manipulating results. Okay, so if you think that it is your duty to win souls to Christ, to be a soul winner, instead of to preach the gospel, Well, if your duty is to win souls, well, I was in a place 
uh, once upon a time where you had a duty. In fact, it was um, uh, every week I had to turn in a report and on that report I had to say how many souls I won to Christ. And if I did not win any souls to Christ, I had to go and visit the office. I'm serious. My name would be read in chapel and I would have to go visit. I got used to my name being read in chapel because I wasn't gonna lie on the report and because, well, my understanding of evangelism changed shortly after I got there. Um, and many visits, in fact, so many that the guy I had to visit just got used to saying, okay, well, you need to keep trying. And that's what he did. I, I was curious if I would get expelled or what was gonna happen with that. Um, but, but that's the problem. You either lie or you manipulate in such a thing, all right? That's not our job. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't use the word soul winning. Doesn't use that word. That's a made up word. I prefer to call it evangelizing because that's much closer to what we're doing. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, our word evangelize uh, or evangelistic is a derivative of that word, really a transliterated word. The only place where the Bible comes close to using the term soul winning is Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. It's curious that people would think that that verse is speaking of um, the great commission that Christ gave. But we certainly need wisdom. May we all have the wisdom to win a soul to Christ. We should pray for it. But if we believe it's our duty to win souls, then we often will resort to manipul manipulative tricks so we can fulfill that duty. As we win souls to Christ, we must follow through to see that the Great Commission is fulfilled. That means diligent teaching, baptizing, discipling, discipleship, teaching them to observe all things. 